So hi, I'm John. And I'm Joe. Welcome to our podcast, Extraordinariness. Where we explore the motivations behind ordinary people's extraordinary accomplishments. So John, who are we hearing from this week? Well, this week we're hearing from a really, really interesting guy called Rob Cassidy. Now, this was actually one of your picks for interviews. And it was. I, I found it. I remember finding him in the research. And I don't remember what happened, but I just remember me ending up doing the interview and I was working and I was late and I'm not going to lie, I hadn't done as much preparation as I'd done for the other interviews. So when I actually sat down with Rob to find out what he'd done, he actually surprised me with a few things that I hadn't realised. Okay, interesting. Yeah, so we, we talked about the fact that basically he's a mountaineer and he's summited Everest, I think, eight times at the time. And he was also the first Westerner to make a double uh, summit. So two wow. summits within a week. What I hadn't realised is that he'd also rode nearly all of the Atlantic Ocean. And, uh, of course he has. Yeah, so there was quite a few things that, that came out. So if I seem like I'm a little bit surprised, it's, um, it's for that reason. I've got written down here that you're the first Westerner to twice double summit Everest in one week. Okay, that's that, probably a truth. Yeah, I believe that's yeah. true. Uh, you see, so you've been up to the peak of Everest eight times. So eight yeah. times still? And uh, eight, how many eight, of those times <clears throat> were you not guiding? Uh, just one. Oh, sorry, two, okay. two, two. Right. Two for myself and uh, six with other people. It makes much harder with other people. It's much... So... Uh, I presume the first time you went, you weren't climbing it solo, though. No, no, I was, uh, I was on a so-called commercial guiding trip, which was unguided. So uh, I went with a, who's now a very close friend, Henry Todd, um, and his expeditions are for people who theoretically have capacity and a kind of an understanding of, of mountain environments, uh, have probably the, 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 I don't know, the wherewithal to climb the mountain, but it's a Sherpa-led uh, guided trip. Right. And, and these days, actually, commercial guiding is evolving more and more into Sherpa-led uh, expeditions. But, but the kind of comfort with, with Henry is that he had a Western base camp set up, you know, the things that you were familiar with and um, his guidance from base camp. And then uh, on the mountain, it was uh, ourselves independently or with Sherpas. Okay. Which, yeah, um, a great thing. So, so what came first, Everest or your Atlantic rowing attempt? Uh, Everest. Everest. Everest is came a first. For a lot of it. Yeah, Everest has like opened so many doors for me. When I was in the army in, uh, in, uh-huh. two, in 1995, I was in Kenya with the Royal Engineers. Yeah. And we, uh, we, as part of our rest and recuperation periods, we, uh, one of the trips we did was Mount Kenya. And okay. so it was just a trekking week. I was vomiting uh, quite a bit. I had diarrhea. It was probably infection more than altitude, but combined yeah. with altitude, dehydration, having no knowledge and no guidance from anyone around because we were just a bunch of guys having a go, a go. We only went to, it's 4,900 meters, so it's not extreme, but it is high altitude, 15,000 feet. Yeah. So it's over 15,000 feet. So and and so before that, you hadn't had, you know, like you, you hadn't had just a desire to climb mountains? No, none at all. I'm from Kent, a low-lying county. Uh, yeah. with, uh, I don't think there's any great uh, alpinists who've come from my, uh, my neck of the woods. <laughs> I was surprised that it wasn't a lifelong desire, a longing to climb to the top of any peak you could see. In fact, this experience of altitude actually had the opposite effect. So I'd had a bit of climbing background on Mount Kenya and realised that altitude wasn't for me. And then, uh, <laughs> then, I, then I, actually there was a pivotal moment. One of the pivotal moments was uh, teeing up my medical school elective. So I went to Newcastle University after a year in the army. I was a second lieutenant in the army. I did a month at Sandhurst. It was uh, a great kind of man-making experience, uh, I say tentatively these days. Um, so then I went to Newcastle University, and um, in the fourth year of med school, you have to choose an elective. So you go and travel uh, normally outside of the UK and work in a, in a foreign hospital or, or, I don't know, in the field, wherever you can find a place that will accept you. So I went to Peru, and I kind of went to Peru because I wanted to do the most people don't work that hard on their elective. It's more about, you know, uh, broadening your horizons, making you a yeah. real person before you become a doctor. And um, so I'd seen, a, a, I read a, an article in the Sunday Times magazine, and it was by Matthew Paris, who is a political commentator. I'm not sure if he's still yep. doing yeah, the same. Yeah. 
but he'd been sure he was travel writing as well at the time you know this is like the late 1990s and uh there's a time when you could phone up the times because there was no real internet there was the internet it just started becoming more more widely used but it was still not that easy to find out information as easily as we do now and so i called the times and uh he took a call and he said hey if you're in newcastle i live in derbyshire come down and meet me and I'll, I'll tell you about how I climbed Mount Ilimani, which is a mountain he climbed in Bolivia. So right. I kind of, I was thinking, well, it's close to Peru. It'd be a way to get into Bolivia. So I spent a, a great uh, day or maybe a weekend with, with him and his partner. And they were very kind, very welcoming. He gave me a signed book of Inca Cola, one of his books he'd written. It was an amazing opportunity. So then I went to Bolivia and climbed uh, Wana Potosi. I was due to climb two mountains, but, um, I'd like road Lake Titicaca. I'd been traveling. I'd done the Inca Trail, backpacking myself. It was like I had an amazing time up until that mountain. And then I got really bad sore throat. We got to the summit quite easily. Coming down, we, we I was with a guide who made a, a harness out of rope for me and another guy that was just on the trip. I forget who he was or how his link was to the, the trip. But on the way down, it was becoming quite warm and sunny. So from the very summit, which was just a little ridge at the top, I was so disappointed. I was so terrified when I got there. On the way down, we were being belayed down by the guide, and then his ice picket fell out, and we all started sliding down and had to do an ice axe arrest. Yeah. Now, I don't think we were in any grave danger. In retrospect, it was probably a slope of 30, 40 degrees, and we would have just come sliding down to a gradual halt. Um, but it felt pretty real at the time. Yeah. And I just said, never again, never, never, never again. The next day... The next day, I looked back at that mountain from La Paz, the capital of uh, Bolivia, and you can see the, the mountains all around you. I saw one of Potosi, this beautiful kind of pointy mountain, and it was just the most incredible sense of achievement I've ever had to have put myself, to have put myself through that uh, apparent adversity, physical challenge for no obvious gain at the time. But then afterwards was my first real sense of, you know, post-event. Uh, I'm a post-event adrenaline junkie. I love that sentiment, a post-event adrenaline junkie. Yeah. Which is so unusual to so many of the other people we, we've spoken to. Yeah. Who really thrive on the adrenaline in the moment. Yeah, I love the fact that he's like, never again. Yeah. But then a few hours later down the bottom. It doesn't seem to take much for him to... No. Um, you don't have to twist his arm. No. Just such a confident person in what I could achieve. And so it really had uh, clicked something in my head about what I was capable of doing. I then plunged into medical school. I loved being, uh, sorry, I plunged into being a, a junior doctor. It was like at the cold face, 80, 90 hours a week. Like everyone was in it, sleeves rolled up. It was just fantastic. And we lived, we were junior doctors. We were house officers. We lived in the house, the yeah. house of God. So there I was, you know, um, living at the hospital. And it was like being a student again, but with, with a bit of cash and a great deal of responsibility. Not that much, actually, in your first year. You kind of, you're, so, you know, you're supervised a lot. But, um, but nonetheless, it comes, you know, with the time on the yeah. job. But I met someone who'd been on Everest. And he, uh, he hadn't quite made it. He didn't make it. But he was on an unguided trip of it, like the trip that I did the first time in 2003. But he said, yeah, you can climb Everest for 8,000 pounds and not the 40 or $50,000 that I'd read about. So suddenly it became financially, yeah. oh, okay, financially that's possible. And then, I, uh, then I, uh, my, my second flat that I moved into, into the, my second, in my second house job, so you, 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 when you change hospital, you change the place that you live. You live in the hospital that you work at. There was a map of Everest on the wall. And in the preceding year, I'd read Into Thin Air by John Krakow, which is a book about a tragedy on Everest in 1996. And most people would read it and say, that's crazy. You know, 11 people died. I think it was 11, but 11 people died in some sort of awful storm. You know, you'd never do that. It's crazy to do something like that. But I looked at it as, well, think about the other 100 who survived. You know, there was something incredible that they all survived this, this terrible storm and only 11 people died. Those three things, I think, kind of focused my mind by the end of uh, by the end of my house job. I was thinking about, hmm, could I climb Everest? I'd kind of like to do that, but when would I do that? I did a A and E in Bristol, accident and emergency, two thousand and one, or two, yeah, the summer of two thousand and one, going into the uh, the winter of two thousand and one two, and you know, drug addiction, social deprivation, people. Uh, 
self-harming, people mutilating other people, people being drunk and disorderly, urinating, vomiting in an emergency department for six months, you know, and you just go at the end of it. I wanted to be a doctor to help people, but most of the time you're playing around with like personality disorders, people who are deliberately harming other people or, or deliberately harming themselves, you know, and, it, and you're just treating social problem after social problem. And it's just like, do you know, if there is a time that I could get out of medicine, this may be the time to get out. Go travel the world, become a really great climber, and hopefully at the end of the year, climb Everest. And that's kind of what I did. What do you have to do to, uh, what sort of training do you do? So you set out and said, you know what, I've climbed a couple of mountains. What do you have to do to say, right, well, I'm going to climb Everest in a, in a year's time? What's the training look like? Well, you know, that's the controversial thing. You know, these days you may actually be able to find someone who'd take you on. And, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll say this honestly, I've taken a friend on Everest who had very little climbing experience, but had lots of other credentials. And because I knew I was going to be giving pretty much round the clock surveillance and in so-called care on the mountain, it, it, it was acceptable to me to, to bring them along. But most of the time, clearly you need to be competent with crampons, ice axe, general mountaineering competencies that, that that probably most people have who go for a weekend trip in the, the, the and, and how and so so when you decided to climb Everest, how did you go about getting all of this uh, competency so um there was a thing called the seven summits which is still a thing uh, so the highest mountain in every summit and uh, i was going to be starting in summer and so it kicked off by doing uh, i had a couple of obvious expeditions elbrus followed by denali and probably on denali i went I thought myself probably less well experienced than I could have been, but I just climbed Elbrus. This is a straightforward climb in Russia. It's on the Russian Georgian border. We had, it was me and a friend and we went with two guides. So we were one-to-one -one with a local Russian guides. It was like $700 to climb Mount Elbrus. It was an amazing trip, an incredible, incredible trip, 2002. Um, but we, we summited relatively easily and there was no question about, it wasn't that difficult physically so i was like oh that's that's reassuring and i've been up to a mountain of six thousand meters so i'd realized now that i was pretty strong on a mountain could i do things technically that was another question so going to denali was uh, the next kind of step up and denali or mount mckinley as other viewers it's also known a lot of people had you know really outlined that as one of the hardest of the seven summits that you could do so it's the highest right. mountain in north america in alaska so a great location to visit i was in a team I turned up feeling a bit worried about how competent I was, but in fact, I was probably one of the more competent people, which makes me, you know, realize that expedition climbing and, and what commercial guiding and climbing means these days is that, yeah, it can be quite variable about what people, the prerequisites that, that aren't often pursued, sadly, by, by these big trip organizers. But um, we didn't summit Denali, uh, so my seven summits bid was off already. Um, uh, but we, we had bad weather. We were stuck at a camp of 14,000 feet for a, for a week. But I learned kind of wow. mountain craft, digging holes, building walls, you know, keeping the stove going all night long, taking snow off the tent when, you know, we had snow overnight for a few days in a row, how to cross crevasses safely. You know, you learn all that kind of craft from, from the guides, uh, from your, you know, from retrospect. And so I came back a bit disappointed, but then I went to, uh, I went to the Andes, went climbing some more technical peaks with, uh, again, I was finding small companies with local guides, one-to-oneing, learning, uh, really going through a kind of a great apprenticeship, actually. And then in, uh, in winter, I went to Aconcagua with Henry. Um, oh, sorry, I'm missing the big thing out. I'd, I'd arranged to go on a trip uh, with a company to Chihuahua, the sixth highest mountain in the world. I'd, I'd read that this right. was the... Probably one of the prerequisites to for us ever summit was an eight thousand meter mountain before. So building up from the from Russia to Alaska to the Andes, I was working in between trips. By the way, it sounds like I had right. this kind of uh, amazing year off. <laughs> like uh, yeah, I was working bloody hard in in locum jobs in between, like mainly in emergency. Like I hadn't, I didn't want to walk away from medicine. I just needed a bit of space to yeah yeah experiment with who I was. But um, yeah, show you the sixth highest mountain in the world, the so-called easiest 8,000 meter mountain in the world. And I get asked often, you know, what's the hardest mountain you've climbed or what's the easiest one? Or any mountain on its day can be deadly and, mm. and very tricky. And so it's, it's hard to say, uh, objectively, it's one of the, certainly the more straightforward routes that you can do. Um, 
but uh, the company that I was supposed to go with, I came back from the Alps, uh, sorry, from the Andes, from Peru, and the, the company had written a letter. It was like before, a little bit before email was being used universally. So I came home to find a letter saying, I'm sorry, we didn't have enough people for our expedition, so we've put you with Henry Todd to go to Chiroyu. He'll meet you in two days' time when you fly. He'll meet you in Kathmandu. It's like, wow, okay. And I'd spent, year, I'd spent months researching which company I was willing to trust my life to on an 8,000-meter mountain, and suddenly they've, they've, they've pulled the rug out from my feet. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, by this time, I'd learned, you know, you have to, you know, you, you, uh, you have to predict... Uh, in predictability or unpredictability you have to know how to react you know react straight away don't don't wait to don't arm and r it too much you have to always think of what can be happening or what can go wrong to predict the unpredictable and then you'll be able to react in a better way and so i, I went and uh, i had a great time with henry we summited show you um it's a fantastic expedition he said that you signed up with the other company to go to everest next year but actually i think you'd be better off served coming with us and uh he, he's like a, he's, he's, you know, he's like an uncle. He's a, uh, he's such a good friend to me now. He's like a, a mentor. Uh, he's an amazing character. Yeah. Um, but yeah, he, uh, he said, come with us on Everest. And I did. And that, it, we summited in, in the spring of the following year, but a tough, tough, tough summit day, tough conditions, tough everything. But I, I learned the hard way. So, um, just talk us through because I imagine a lot of people probably don't know how you know how climbing a mountain like Everest works. Obviously, it's not something where you kind of put your pack on in the morning and go right off we go. So, how how do you what do you have to do to summit Everest? How does it work? So, um, yeah, so you have to uh, you have to prepare yourself physically. So you you're 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 well advised to, to turn up relatively uh, in good measure physically to to to, to take on the task. But because it takes so long to acclimatize, which is an essential for getting to the altitudes that you'll be flying at, uh, because it takes time to acclimatize to the higher parts of the mountain, you've got time to get yourself into physical shape. So a lot of people ask, you know, what do you physically have to do prior to going on a big trip like that to, to, to get in shape? And the answer actually is probably up until your mid-40s, and if you're in relatively good shape anyway, not a lot. Yeah, this is a shocking thing to say that, that yeah. anyone can do Everest. Um, but actually, amazingly, and that's what makes me feel good about it, actually anybody can do Everest in the right circumstances with the right preparation. You have to, uh, you have to kind of, you have to learn etiquette on the mountain. I think there's, there are things that are done, ways that, are, ways that things are done that take time to adjust to. You know, as a young buck, I was like excited to get going. I wanted to go as quickly as I could. I wanted to be up, down, up and down the quickest. The, you know, everything was about beating my last effort or beating the person ahead of me. But actually, it's it's a, it's much more internal uh, uh, when you're on a big mountain like this. It's, it's, it's a kind of you have to conserve energy. You have to realize that getting to the summit is only halfway up. You know, it's you've got to get back down as well. So it's yeah, sure. It's a big psychological game, actually, if you want to succeed at, at high altitude. You've got to know that there'll be days when there is nothing doing. You can't go when there's a storm. So you just you sit there. You sometimes end up doing very, very little. And I, I think I've not been in a wartime situation when I was in the army. There was no active combat. Um, but, but my reading of some expeditions to or, or excursions to Afghanistan and Iraq, there is obviously times when you're in incredible perilous danger but you're probably more at danger from boredom um when you're just in a camp not doing a lot or you're doing very arduous chores and, and I, think I was just about to say it sounds like it could be very boring at times yeah but if you if you if you're that kind of person who needs tv or you know before before maybe 2007 there was no we didn't have a dvd player at base camp we didn't have the yeah, internet yeah. Now it's all like internet, uh, unlimited internet for like a hundred bucks so a month, and people are like loving it. And it's like the best food, the warmest camp. Uh, and how long do people tend to stay at base camp? Uh, you can be there for six, six to eight weeks. Wow. Okay, that's a long time. Yeah, but you like you're going up and down the mountain. So in terms of how you do it, acclimatization, you you go up uh, a certain uh, uh, to a certain altitude you may go to camp one and then camp two in one trip and come back down so that's from 5,400 meters at base camp to 
6,000 at camp one, 6,400 at camp two. Spend a couple of days uh, and nights there. You come back down. You have three or four days of regenerating, eating, eating, what is it? Eating, shitting, sleeping. You know, that's pretty much the, <laughs> the recipe for success. But um, excuse my French. Too much the purpose time. Of this, <laughs> and the purpose of this is, is for your body to uh, basically more red blood cells, make it so that you can hold more oxygen. Is This is the purpose of the acclimatization and going up and down. Exactly. And so uh, you can't do it alpine style. At this point in the discussion, Rob and I went off on a tangent discussing high altitude supplementary oxygen. But what I wanted to know was the double summit. How did that come around? If people tend to take so long to do one summit of Everest, what was involved in that double summit? And just in case you're interested, I've left the supplementary oxygen discussion on the end of the podcast. The two summits was basically, uh, I was asked in 2007 by Kenton, Kenton Cool, uh, uh, a much more uh, elite athlete, is a really good friend. He's summited Everest about 15, 16 times uh, from the UK. He's just climbed K2. You know, he's a, he's a, He's the, the main man in British climbing or high altitude British climbing. Uh, he said, you know, you've been up Everest twice. You know, there's not many, but in 2007, not many people had summited Everest twice from the UK or, or at all, Westerners. So he said, you know, would you, uh, I know you're not a guide, but would you, um, would you come and be a high altitude T-boy? Come and help me look after a yeah. group of, uh, he had four or five people he was looking after. So it's a bit too many for just one guide. And they were paying him proper guide fees to look after him. And so I met them before we went and they were happy for me to go. They knew that I'd been summited twice. And being a doctor, it was always a kind of, that was a great card to have actually. On, on yeah, Monday definitely. Um, so, uh, so I went and half the team got ill pre-first summit attempt. They got diarrhea and they just said, we can't go. It's not, not the moment. And of course, that's, that's their decision. We thought that was their chance gone. So we went up on the first attempt with the, the ones who were well. We summited on the 17th of May, uh, came down, we got down to the South Cole, stayed the night and came down from the South Cole all the way to base camp uh, on the uh, on the 18th. So normally you'd take two days to come down. We came down in, in a one It was quite, quite impressive, actually. It was like a long day. Yeah. Um, and then the, the guys who were ill prior to leaving, we'd left maybe five days earlier, were much better. And they said, look, you know, we still want to go. <laughs> So, uh, so I, I hadn't thought much about it. I was pretty, I was of the, the feeling, you know, you know, you miss your chance. It's, it's, it's done and dusted. I didn't know that there would be another opportunity, but we had an amazing weather window in 2007. Another window opened up. Kenson said, you know, what do you think? Do you want to go a second time? I was like, bloody hell. Of course, you know, like, uh, you know, this is a kind of, this is a, a chance to do a first. This was a, so from a kind of a very embarrassingly egoistic kind of sense, this is a great challenge for me. It wasn't just about getting other people up to the summit safely. Yeah. But also it was about, you know, yeah, so it was about putting something in the, drawing a line in the sand around a new record. It was about doing something good for them. They'd spent thirty, forty thousand dollars $40,000. You know, it wasn't coming to me yeah. that money, but it was... That's what the sort of number, number they paid. And so that's, you know, actually, that was, we should do our best to give them a chance. So we, uh, yeah, we went up a second time. Kenton was ill. He had diarrhea all the way. He kind of, uh, he had to sort of, he kind of uh, went up, but we didn't see much of him uh, that, 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 yeah, that, at that time for understandable reasons. And I was in a kind of, in the slow lane with these guys who did make it to the summit, safe and sound. Um, we came down and uh, we lived to tell the tale. So another interesting thing is that the, this wasn't an intentional record. It wasn't no. something he set out to do. It was kind of seizing an opportunity that presented itself. Yeah, yeah, basically. And I think like it's probably best not to underestimate the physical feat as well. Because I think being up at high altitude for a long time has big effects on your body. You know, there's like pulmonary edema and all sorts of things that that the altitude affects you in a big way. So being able to, you know, I think just the physical effort of going up and down. Yeah, it's no mean feat. Yeah. I do love how he's, he is very honest. He does accept that he's doing something good and he wants to help the other people, but th there is still a modesty in his acceptance of the fact that he knew he was achieving something for himself as well. Yeah, yeah. And I do like that honesty. Yeah. I got, um, 
I diagnosed it now as tracheitis and I've become probably, although I haven't written about it in medical journals, I'm probably the world's expert on high altitude tracheitis. What's tracheitis? So your trachea is your, your main airway uh, leading to the, the bronchi in each lung, which divide multiple times to go into the lobes of your lungs. So it's the major conduit or conduit for, for passing oxygen from the atmosphere by your mouth to your lungs. And basically, you have cold air inflames cold and dry air and probably hypoxic air is not good for the lining of your trachea, so it becomes inflamed. So you get a cough, a bit like with bronchitis, you know, seasonal mm. cough. But um, I realized I was getting stridor. <laughs> so when you breathe in, <laughs> so the tube was getting narrower and narrower. And, uh, and I was coughing and coughing and I, I had a kind of unusual voice. And I remember coming on the way down, I, uh, I sat at the balcony uh, having a coughing fit. And then suddenly this tube came flying out of my mouth. And then I breathed back in and it went back in and I was like blocking my airway. So I had to literally jump up and down being a medic, I kind of had the presence of mind to think about it and dislodge this kind of tube out of my uh, upper airway. And I remember just like playing with it and it was literally 10 centimeters long. Yeah. It was a cast of my trachea. I was like, geez, I, I felt a whole lot better once I'd got that up, but I felt pretty rough as you can imagine, but it was a kind of a mechanical blockage to my airway. It was like, crikey. I talk about that only to say that uh, in 2010, I had a, someone had a respiratory arrest from the same thing in retrospect. I'm quite clear about that in my mind now. At Camp 2 after summiting, her name's Anita, and she, uh, she's gone on to have a, two children and lives in the States now. But she, uh, she'd summited, and uh, uh, it's probably my only time on the mountain where I can say I've really saved somebody's life. I don't understand. So Yeah, so I didn't understand when he first told me this. My understanding of it is that the air caused uh, like an inflammation mm-hmm. on the airway and then he coughs that inflammation out. <laughs> it's kind of like a cast. So it's not like a physical part of his body. No, it's like a cast of his trachea from all of the inflammation and stuff. And that's, like the that's, mucus, Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah oh, okay, yeah, so it's not a part of his... It's an internal organ. No, it's not like he's coughed up his entire trachea, but it's a car- as he says, it's a cast of his trachea. But nevertheless, that would be that would freak me out. I mean, if I because I, I would have felt like I coughed up. Listening to this, I'm not going to lie. <laughs> and if that happened to me, I would never. I don't think I could go up the stairs. <laughs> you have to deal with the situation in hand. Um, but it turns out, like if you run more oxygen through your airway at high flows of oxygen, it's it's the the oxygen is desiccated. There's no humidity within. So it, it, in some ways, it, it makes it even worse, I think. It's a kind of a, you're a self-precipitating cycle. But in 2007, I didn't think much more of it. In 2010, I came, I'm coming down with Anita. Benita, imagine the, the comms issues with Benita, uh, a, a young friend who's fallen at the Hillary step and has got back pain and can't descend, down with Anita. So Anita starts having breathing difficulties whilst Bonita is being transferred down. And all of this energy is going into saving Bonita. The radio is constantly being used to talk about Bonita. Anita says to me at Camp 3, we've been to the summit from the South Pole at 8,000 metres, up to the summit, back down to the South Pole. And we decided to get down to Camp 2. It's much safer at Camp 2. It's a big, it's a huge day for anybody. But I thought they had it in them and it was probably on balance the best thing to do. We get to Camp 3 and she says, Rob, I can't breathe. I'm having trouble breathing. I said, well, I, like I didn't have a stethoscope on, you know, you're, you know, I'm a doctor. Yeah. But I put my hands on her back. There was no kind of feeling of a pneumonia, which you can feel by what's called tactile vocal fremitus. When they speak, you transmit more easily with with pus in the lungs or pneumonia i said no i, th- I can't hear any wheeze i think i think you'll be fine and i just gave her an inhaler just you know i had for some one reason or another i had an inhaler in my pocket things like you know emergency first aid yeah. take that we'll be fine i come down and she's getting slower and slower and we eventually get into camp two like in the dead of night maybe seven eight in the evening it's that point when we get to the base of this, uh, the the lotsy face no one's there to help us, no lights. We're still a good hour and a half from getting to, to camp two and their relative safety. Everyone's still talking about Bonita, who's a dear friend. So I'm, I'm in distraught about Bonita, wanting to make sure she gets down to the South Pole. 
And I have to say, break, break, break. You know, this is Robert. You know, based on the lady face, we're all alone. We have a problem. We have a medical problem with Anita. Like a serious medical problem. Someone bring up oxygen rapidly. So they realise that no one's going to be able to get oxygen to them. And they managed to push on down to Camp 2 with Anita. And basically... All the while Bonita is... All the while, yeah. Everyone's worrying about Bonita, yeah. And so that I think that might be one of the reasons why no one's able to come and help Rob with Anita. So they get down to Camp 2 and he basically is like, right, well, we're here, you need to go rest. Okay. So I'm just, just about to fall asleep because I was knackered, as you can imagine. And her husband drags me out of my tent. You know, she's, she's gone blue, she's not breathing. And as I get to the mess tent, she comes running out. She's, I can't breathe. And then she falls to the ground and that's it. She's dead. Oh my gosh. She's not breathing, she's nothing. And so I, I didn't, you know, you're supposed to feel for a pulse, but. I'm pretty sure I didn't. I think I just started doing compressions. And as I did uh, chest compressions, a lot of stuff came out of her airway. Like a lot of nasty, nasty material came out of her airway. And so she had a, she had seesawing of her abdomen. Normally when you breathe in, uh, your, your abdomen shouldn't like go, it's a kind of a paradoxical movement of abdomen blowing out when it should be sucking in for inspiration, expiration. So she had that for sure. But like we gave her, I gave her dexamethasone into her, her jugular vein. I, I basically said, I said, I can't deal with this. I'm like, I don't know how to think properly. I was like on the radio, cut all radio chatter. This is Rob Camp 2. There's a, we have a respiratory arrest. I had friends who were doctors at base camp. They just said, right, do this, do this. And I was just like a, a tool, a kind of a tool being controlled by my friends at base camp. Yeah. So I just did what they told me to do and she survived. But in retrospect, she had tracheitis as well. Right. So it's, an, it's, a, it's an underdiagnosed reason for a sudden death at a high altitude, I'm quite sure. An airway obstruction due to inflammation of the trachea. We, we, we have travelled, we have like digressed from probably the reason why we should be talking, but <laughs> it, it's, a, it's a fascinating subject, high altitude physiology, what can go wrong physically. But at the end of the day, most of the problems that we encounter are psychological. You need to be really yeah. rip-roaringly strong to up here. That's, that's what it takes to climb Everest. Um, so, uh, one thing we, so usually we're talking to someone who we're, we're talking about one particular adventure. So say we're talking about, uh, uh, marathon de sable or, uh, transcontinental bike race or something like that. So we usually ask what's the highest point and the lowest point. So for you, I guess across your, uh, Everest summits, and I haven't even talked about the rowing thing. I'm going to try and get two minutes of that in a minute. Right. So, so across all of your Everests, uh, time on Everest, time climbing Everest, or just time climbing mountains in general, what's kind of the highest point you've had and perhaps what's the lowest point that you've had? Wow. Um, there's been a lot of, uh, a lot of highs and a lot of lows. I mean, certainly I've lost great friends in the mountains. I've been on trips where they've died during the expedition. So wow. 2005 was one of the years where we didn't summit and uh, Rob Milne, uh, a teammate on the trip, uh, like we met him, I met him there. We were close friends before. I don't think we were particularly close during the expedition, but as with all of these things, when you spend a lot of time with someone, you see the best and the worst, but you're, you're there for a combined reason of, you know, you're all sharing mm-hmm. the same goal. So, you know, by, by default, he was, you know, we were close. And then... Um, Losing him on summer day in 2005 made me realize the mountains were, uh, uh, it wasn't just a playground. It wasn't just fun. Yeah. And like when you do climb something like Everest, it's or want to, you really want, need to want to do it because you could lose your life. It's quite, it's not, it's not unlike, it's not probable, but it's not unlikely either. So that was that. Uh, I've lost Tundu. Um, Tundu is one of my closest friends, uh, Shepherd Fens, who died on Amadablan in 2016. We'd just been on Choyu with him. My wife and uh, and I, we sent to show you with him and Dan, a good friend of Dan. Uh, 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 and uh, to Tundu, uh, I went to, to the Kumbu on a trekking trip with him afterwards. And um, we were talking about what did it, what number did it need for him to get out of high altitude climbing? What number did I need to bring in from trekking trips to pay him mm. on an annual basis to make him perhaps stop doing high altitude mountains just because he had to from a financial basis or he felt that he had to? And we, we were just talking about that that kind of subject as I left him. And um, he said, uh, you know, I think I'm going to do Amadablan this year, just, you know, just to kind of final supplement. I'd be safe. And uh, he died that season. 
And, uh, you know, he was hit by, there was a small earthquake which triggered a Serac fall and a block of ice is on his head. And it's, uh, you know, it's by hook or by crook, you know, it's those sliding doors moments, you know, had he been yeah. five minutes you know, higher or five minutes lower, he wouldn't yeah, have proved. Yeah. It's been one of those innocuous moments in time. Uh, yeah, and then the, the big Serac fall in 14, the earthquake in 2015, we lost three teammates at base camp. From the earthquake in 2015 which yeah. wiped out half of the camp you know these there's some awful tragedies i can't you know we're there for nefarious reasons of pleasure and, and you know self-promotion or egotistical kind of desire to, to do something that we see as valid and good but there are people earning their livings and endangering their lives from from our simplistic pleasures and so it's you know it's a kind of it's part of the game i think no no sherpa is forced into it but like as a cook uh are those Sorry. are those lows? Are they balanced out by the highs of maybe standing on the summit, or looking back up at the summit and saying, "I achieved that"? What's the saying? It's better to have. Uh, what is it when you've when you've broken? Better to have loved and failed than to have never I've loved. Lost and never loved at all. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I, I, I think yes. I wouldn't have known Tindu had I not. Uh, met him through climbing mountains and you know we yeah. shared amazing experiences he uh he was part of he was there when the lady became very unwell at camp two that we discussed a, a few minutes ago and as a result her husband who was a watchmaker in, in pittsburgh he uh basically paid for him and his friend uh, namgil to go out and become watchmakers so they their lives completely changed as it happened yeah. it was kind of up and down period of their lives but it's you know he had a great opportunity as a result of climbing and, and he knew the risks but I guess you never you never expect to you never expect to uh to die. You you know it's possibility, but you never expect to lose your life yeah. in those kind of So are they outweighed by the, the ups? Uh <laughs> yeah, yeah, my life is my life is uh complete. If I get killed tomorrow, I'll be, you know, in it's a tragedy in terms of not being able to see my daughter grow up or uh, you know, there are so many other things, other projects I'd like to get involved with or do. Um, but, but I feel like I've lived my life. I've never to the full because rather I, than I, just I, existed. Yeah, I see so many I people. Suppose, yeah. know, just live, live, they're not living their life. They're they're just walking through it, and it's sometimes you know through no fault of their own. I think love and yeah. love and nurturing at the beginning of your life that's really important. So my parents always gave me love and nurturing for sure. They try to give me the opportunity. You need to have that moment in time where you take control and make the opportunities. You can't just be passive. I know summiting Everest second summit in 2010, you know, that was bringing up my uh, seventh summit. And the first time a Brit or anyone actually, a Westerner had done two double summits, a double summit in the, you know, in the same climbing season. That was a week apart. The first one was eight days apart. It was like, you know, wow, that's, you know, that, you know, I'd be like going into a bar and I'd be chatting to some of the most famous climbers in the world and they, they wouldn't be telling me to piss off, you know, they'd be like, yeah, yeah, yeah. you know, and like, yeah. so I had, I had a bit of respect from, you know, the medical tragedies or difficulties on the mountain. I was often the guy called to go up and, you know, administer aid on the mountain, you know, so it was like, yeah, I had a, there were some great, great moments on that mountain and, and, 2007, the second summit, before I blew up my trachea from my airway, I'd realized I wasn't feeling so good. I knew something was impending, uh, like sixth sense, but I was still able to proceed and move cleanly and with, you know, faster than the guys coming behind me. So I was about 100 meters in front. The Sherpas were one-to-one -one with the, the members. So I was kind of surveying and I got to the summit and I was there all by myself for 10, 15 minutes. I mean, an incredible, incredible moment in time just to sit there on the summit of summit of the world, this this place that becomes so important for me that defined me up until that point and still does in many ways. The reason I'm talking to you is because of Everest, yeah. not my failed Atlantic Road, you know? So um, it's, uh, yeah, I it's, it's an amazing place, amazing people. Expeditioning is awesome. It's like you're living your life. You're going for a something positive as opposed to trying to correct something that's negative. So my job as a doctor is about trying to get someone back to their baseline and their baseline often isn't very good. Whereas in the mountains, I'm trying to take someone to the, the very top of their, their achievement list, you know, to, to, to push them beyond their, their, their wildest dreams. You know, it's, you know, it's a kind of, it's the mirror image of being a doctor. So before I started interviewing Rob, I didn't actually know about his Atlantic rowing attempt. 
that this is a story that you're not going to want to miss. We were delayed by uh, a month for the departure because of uh, unseasonal weather on the east coast of America, hurricane, hurricanes on the east coast, which you'll know much more about this in terms of weather systems, but the Azores, there's normally a high pressure system that develops end of the year, beginning of January, February time. So that develops mm. the trade wind from the west coast of Africa. So easterlies from the west coast of Africa will push most boats, boat faring vessels uh, towards the east coast of America yeah. or the Caribbean. So to row, actually, you could just sit on your boat and you probably make yeah. direct yeah. direction progress. But we, we had really unseasonal weather <laughs> which basically affected our, our departure date. We couldn't leave because it was very, just unusually bad weather where we were, but also no resource, high pressure. So nothing was working in the right favor for us. And then, so we left a month later than we should have done in kind of the 10th of January. It should have been the beginning of December. So we'd, we'd planned like, you know, 60 days would be a reasonably good time. Yeah. But that's with a lot of help from the trade winds. So we, we didn't have any help from the trade winds and we left at the beginning of beginning to mid-January and uh, we uh, yeah we just we got to the 73rd day and I was due on Everest about 10 days later I was supposed to be trekking in with my mother-in-law to right <laughs> and uh, and and then I actually was guiding people on Everest and um, I don't know I was like I can't I'm not sure I can just pull out on my, my mother-in-law I felt a real sense of responsibility and a friend uh I just thought, I, I, I can't, what can I do? What can I do? I, I, like, I, I don't know. I can't just pitch up heart midway through the expedition either on a, an Everest. Yeah. I, was being, I was not being paid, but I had my trip paid for on Everest by people who'd worked hard and, and sacrificed a lot to go on an Everest expedition with me. So I couldn't just mm. like you know, toss that over the side of the boat. And like, of course, I was like, I'm so close. I'm, so, I'm like 280 miles from Antigua. And of course, we're doing up and down, up and down. So we're rowing longer or further than the actual distance as the crow flies. Plus we had like five or six days of stormy weather. So we were on sea anchor, which is like a huge parachute you dump in the ocean. You hope the currents will, will do better than the wind pushing against you. The current yeah. should be taking you towards where you're going. So the anchor kind of catches that and you're being pulled in the right direction, but the, the, the wind's obviously trying to blow you back. So, you know, we lost like 50 miles in a day on number on many numbers of days, you know, in this this storm. It's like very, very depressing. <laughs> that's, yeah, that's really, that's like a Sisyphean, you know, pushing the rock up the hill just for it to roll back oh, down again. Oh, yeah, 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 absolutely. But like, I mean, it, the, the things didn't go that well. I mean, I, you know, I should say it's, it's nothing to hide. And I think um, there are often, you know, conflicts of interest or conflicts of personality in, in the office. I'm sure there are in the cockpit. You haven't always flown with... The people you'd necessarily get on most with. And uh, and I think for a really stressful situation, the person that I chose to be with was probably not the right match. And he wasn't in the right frame of mind before departure. My life was going from kind of strength to strength. I had a, a, a now my wife, but a girlfriend who was very close with, you know, and I was going to propose to her soon after I, you know, got back from Everest in 2010. You know, I, I think we were already engaged to be married. So life was pretty clear for mm. me and going really well and for him he had a you know breakup just before leaving uh you know we, we because we had this extra month he went back to try and salvage his relationship it broke down again he lost like 14 15 pounds in a month by kind of just neglecting himself i think so i was like geez who are you that's all oh, right i won't say who it is because it's not uh yeah okay okay you know, i don't want to kind of um but yeah, so like when you have to check the water maker, the, the, we had a, we were, we didn't know what, you know, you don't know what you have to do before you do it. You kind of have yeah. a, you get an idea, you do some training, you do an ocean master's course, you have an idea about navigation, how to read the, read the stars with the sextant or the, you know, the position of the sun with the sextant, but you never use that, you're using a GPS. But we had a, um, we had a water maker, um, the machine, which is sucking in the water to transfer across to the filtration area. The actual motor was like bathing itself in like water, a leaking cabinet that was like filling with water every day. So we had to manually evacuate that. Otherwise, we were always going to be at risk of our water maker breaking down. And like we had a checklist that every time you change shift, two hours on, two hours off, you go and check the water maker or at least three or four times a day. But he wasn't like he'll say was. Yeah, so it's probably he, he said, she said, you know, that kind of. I don't want to get into school ground politics. <laughs> I was quite clear in my mind what I was expected to do, but it was very difficult to have a conversation. It was very difficult to talk to, to that person. And, uh, and, and when you were trying to, 
bring the concerns that you had about, you know, uh, uh, husbandry of the boat and how it was suffering and how that could actually really affect our capacity to cross the ocean. It, it, it led to conflict. And so it was really, really, I had some very dark moments actually on the, the row. It was kind of, um, your, I had some amazing moments on the road. You know, I remember nights where I was pretty sleepy. It was almost hallucinating, but like putting in the paddle and just seeing ever increasing circles of phosphorescence from the paddle. And as you lift yeah, up the yeah. paddle, it drops down and it, you see this amazing phosphorescence. I mean, incredible. And then big mammals, you know, whales, dolphins, you know, following the boat, swimming with us, you know, for days or hours, you know, and, 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 big storms and you're out rowing and you've got a leash on your ankle and you, you know, there are stories where people have rowed, uh, you know, they've gone to bed and they come out and the, the other person is not on deck. <laughs> <laughs> There's one person who won't listen, you know, so you realize a leash on your ankle could be, that's the difference between life or death, or it could be. Yeah. And yeah. you do get, you get rogue waves sometimes. It's really incredible. I mean, it's an incredible experience. And like when you push off from La Gomera, where we, we, we left from, that's where the race that I was participating in. It's an incredible sense of adventure. I was doing something different to climbing, um, but you know, to see terra firma drift off by, and we were in not the nicest of conditions. It was like, bloody hell, this is, uh, this, is, this, is, this is way, way beyond anything I could have imagined. Uh, this is way, it's another level of complexity. You know, we're gonna be days or, or weeks from help mm. you know that's that's not nothing that's something and so it was yeah, like, yeah, oh. yeah and as i realized we were having a bit of a difficult time together it was like oh this is going to be tough but uh, like I'm, and then I, you had I, your mother-in-law to worry about of course so well you know so we, on the 73rd day i mean i'm not someone who gives up i'll never give up once yeah. i'm once i'm in it once there's a lot riding on it you know we'd spent months of our lives working yeah. double shifts to pay for this boat which is like, it's like sucking money out of our lives it was probably all told maybe 25 grand each yeah. you know wow. I'm, I'm i'm not um i'm from a you know a very moderate modest background you know that's money i'd i'd earned you know, a lot of people were doing sponsorship and either they were doing professional sponsorship or they were just had wealthy contacts you know and but we 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 put that boat through love, you know, blood, sweat, and tears, and it, you know, to see it all go up in flames at the end was, uh, a, you know, pretty tragic. But he finished, thankfully. So I think at least he got something from it, even though you know it was tricky for him. So, so did you get taken off the boat? Yes, yeah, so there's two support vessels, and one one came out when I, you know, they knew that I had this kind of ambitious project of rowing the ocean, followed by climbing Everest. Uh-huh. I never imagined, I thought I have like a couple of weeks holday on Antigua. Yeah, yeah. My, uh, my wife, <laughs> my wife, and it'd be awesome. And uh, instead I got, I got literally the, the, the dump in the ocean uh, when I got picked up. They literally, uh, they're going at two knots. That's the slowest they can go. We're going as, you know, we're pretty much idling, zero. It's amazing yeah. how fast two knots an hour is when a large sailing vessel comes by you. But like literally I had all my, my my personal belongings in bin bags tied in a row i had a they they threw this uh, i think a like a, a really long line that i had to attach to myself in the time that it took for their vessel to come close by <laughs> and then suddenly i'm whipped off the you know whipped off the boat i'm literally <laughs> flying through the air then i'm suddenly being dragged in the water and like i suddenly i'm pulled in eventually with with my gear it's amazing how it all worked out but like you know, you're in the middle of the Atlantic Ocean. Yeah. There's no, there's no light. There's no amber lighting. Nothing. You don't have any personal, be- you know, locator beacon. Just like there's so many things that could have. Yeah. When I think about it, like, and it's such a minor thing to jump in the water from a boat. I mean, it's not a big deal. Yeah, no, but it isn't. Have- it is. It is when it's bottomless. <laughs> but yeah, exactly. And so, uh, or a big, big, big fish could eat you. But uh, who knows? Anyway, I they. In two days, I was in Antigua. I had one night in Antigua. I flew back to the UK. Uh, two days later, I was on a flight to Nepal, and I was walking in... I was literally less than a week, I was walking to base camp. And oh I, I, I still had, like, jelly legs. I could barely walk. This imagery of a sort of bearded Robinson Crusoe being <laughs> yanked off his little rowing boat. I mean, this story is just... <laughs> I thought we were here to talk about Everest and there's this whole other... Yeah. It, it, can almost it could be a whole up. podcast on its own, yeah. But I'll tell you what's really interesting is how important, particularly if you think back to our interview with Kat and Raz yeah. and how we 
we kind of really identified the importance of that unfaltering trust in each other yeah. and being part of a really strong team and you can see the sort of wheels coming off. Yeah, you don't imagine many scenarios where one of you being yanked off the rowing boat by another boat would probably leave you both feeling a bit relieved. I, I mean, it's bizarre, <laughs> isn't it? And how tense that must have been with two people in such an intense situation. Well, similar to Nick and Hamish on, on their role. Yeah. Um, but to both be in such different head spaces, you know, Rob speaks a lot about the importance of your psychological state. Yeah. And, you know, this one really, really hits home. It must have been a tough conversation, like, oh, I'm sorry, mate, I've got another appointment. <laughs> <laughs> Good luck. <laughs> Rob and I briefly discussed how it must have been difficult going from rowing the Atlantic to climbing a mountain, given that he probably lost an awful lot of weight. And this reminded Rob of a moment during his childhood that he thinks was the making of him. I was a really obese child, and uh, I think that's probably one of the things that changed me, actually. I was, uh, when I went from primary school to secondary school, you know Grange Hill, you'll probably remember. Yeah, yeah, right? yeah. yeah. Uh, and Roly was the fat kid, and I just didn't want to, I just didn't want to have the, to be, my friends were so great to me. My friends always loved me for who I was, not not for what I looked like. Uh, but anyway, I decided to do it for myself, so I lost them. Um, we did a, a, a 24 hour famine to raise money for Ethiopia. It was like that era, you know, like the eighties, mid eighties, mid was yeah. 86. So I didn't eat for 24 hours. And I remember the, you know, the cheese and onion flan and, and baked potato and tomato, uh, uh, baked beans that I would love normally and hoofed down like a voracious, you know, uh, animal normally. I was like, when your stomach shrivels up after 24 hours, it's a bit less able to eat. And I suddenly realized, <laughs> This needs to change now. And so I lost, uh, yeah. So how old were you? I was 11, but I decided to go on a, sort of counting calories at 11. It became almost, you know, I have to say probably a bit, I can see how anorexia can can kill some some vulnerable people. But yeah, I lost 50 pounds, which is, you know, like three stone in weight, over three stone in weight. I went down from a, I had custom made shorts for school by my aunt because Marks and Spencer or BHS didn't have the, you know, the biggest short size wouldn't fit me. So I had to have a 30, you know, short uniform. For yeah, school. yeah, yeah, yeah. But you didn't well, do this because because you were bullied or anything like that. You did this because you you, no, you said, no, I, I don't want to, I want to do this. For me. That's amazing. That's So you've obviously a very uh, strong-minded person. I think that's what triggered it. I think I realized that 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 if I didn't want to be Rolly in Grainshaw, and it, would, it probably wouldn't have been that. Well, I think I would have been actually, but... I'm glad I, like I did that. it. Can we can we say that Rolly from Grange Hill is your influence, your biggest influence in life? Absolutely. I'd want to run with that. You can, you can, <laughs> because because uh, and I but I would say that people who uh, people who carry more weight than they perhaps should can be extremely fit and healthy, uh, and they can be very ha- happy. And I think being thin and, and and aesthetically, you know, nice looking is not the the way to success. So I would stress that it's not. Yeah, a, yeah, yeah. But it was. Uh, I think there was a whole you know how you know an 11 year old i don't really know why they do a lot of things that they do but like i realized i just didn't want that to be the case but anyway when i lost the weight suddenly like the school disco i you know the girl you know you could dance with the girl uh you could i could throw a ball further than i could when i was fatter i suddenly i was getting i was a goalkeeper in football before changing to rugby but i suddenly became really good at football i could actually i was more agile i could you know i could Everything yeah. became much better, and I realised I was kind of physically much more able than 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 I had been, and, if, and as it turns out, quite competitive in in you know a number of different areas, just because of harnessing what I had as opposed to neglecting what I had. So people often will, will come up with reasons why they can't do X, Y, or Z: be it climbing Everest, row the Atlantic, uh, start a business. You know, what advice would you give to people then? Neurolinguistic programming is a really good way of doing it if you want to look at it scientifically. And if you're trying to say to someone you should stop smoking or any habit that someone does or any reason why you're not doing something, you, you shouldn't, it, you don't engender success by saying you shouldn't do that or you should do this a kind of command. It's like, what do you have to gain by continuing what you're doing? And what do you have to gain from making the change that we're suggesting or that you need to propose to yourself? So, like, smoking is a great example. What do you have to gain by continuing? Okay, so it's it's not all, you know, Jitan on the Champs-Élysées with a beautiful French woman. You know, it's 
actually you're you're smoking a cigarette just because it's a you know a habit you like the taste maybe um you know social who knows i don't know the reasons why people smoke but uh what do you gain by not smoking it's like well you're gonna gain more money in your pocket you can go on a holiday that you couldn't have had or you can buy that bike that you i have a lot of patients who say to me oh you know you're a rich doctor you've got a you've got a nice bike i said well with the three thousand dollars that i spent on my bike that's how much you spent on cigarettes last year mm. so i just made my choice it's like you've got that choice and of course that's from a doctor's perspective that's too simplistic it'll never work for most people just by telling them no 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 you know it doesn't yeah yeah but so yeah so for someone who's saying i can't someone who's thinking about doing something that they're worried they will fail at or worried that it's beyond their capacity to do i guess that's the same thing isn't it but or financially beyond what they can do financial things is a tough one isn't it so there's no justice in that but there's always uh, we can come we can come around to that in a second but it's like, what do you gain by not trying? And what do you gain by by actually pushing yourself forwards? Mm. And what you know, what do you risk by not trying? What do you risk by trying? And I think it comes down to that, that, that you know, better of love and loss. Well, I, I saw the James Bond movie last night, and they had a oh, line no, in it which wait, was no. which was something like. Uh, man was born to live not just to exist or something like that it comes out of the end and it's obviously a famous quote i need to dig it out but i think that's kind of summed up you know the stuff that you've told me today which is kind of this idea of just sort of breaststroking through a sea of lethargy in your life rather than oh. uh, you know making things happen and going out and, and doing it whether you fail or whether you you know you you, you pull it off yeah and I, and I think of course it's, it's a bit different for a you know olympic athlete we an olympic athlete just to come 10th you're, you're you go into it dreaming of a gold medal and so that becomes more and more realistic over time and and you, you know whether you you have a chance and i guess you if you know you're not going to win a gold medal when you go to the olympics you 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 change your objectives it's a bit like people walking to base camp or going there to climb the mountain thereafter uh base camp of everest you know when you go when i go there trekking i'm like bloody hell that mountain is so high i could never climb mm. that mountain to if you're walking there to then mount, climb the mountain, it's like it's really high, but like I've already gone halfway up by the time yeah. I get to the camp, and you break it down into little bits, and suddenly the challenge at each level is much less than the the, the challenge yeah, yeah. as a whole. So, so the, the, there are lots of techniques for making something more palatable, uh, more 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 tangible, because uh, I do think yeah, things seem impossible to do, but until you try, you'll never never know. So I think mm. unless you're Unless you're completely adverse to, to failing, then I think you're you're missing out a lot by never never trying. So I like that. To, uh, yeah, I think it's um it's a real false illusion to to believe that you have to succeed at everything. And some of my best friends at medical school who burned themselves out were always driven to to always achieve and to do the best they possibly could. And sometimes you just have to take a step back and say it's okay if it doesn't work out. It's yeah. gonna be it's. Just take a step back, and it's not. I'm not trying to. I'm not lusting for failure, by the way. Don't get me wrong. I'm no, no, no. But it, but accepting that it's an outcome of trying something is important, yeah. isn't it? Otherwise, you might not try. So, what do you think? I, I really enjoyed that. It's um, it's a roller coaster. Yeah. I feel like that. I've been on a journey with Rob. <laughs> um, but in terms of the toolbox. Well, yeah. So I mean, like, uh, there's a. The big thing that sticks out of me throughout the whole discussion with uh, with Rob is that he, ha- he is a fine example of someone with a growth mindset. And so actually, I just brought up on uh, Google 10 key characteristics of growth mindset. Mm-hmm. And uh, we've got number one, resilience from failure. Yeah, and he has just spoken to us about that. Yeah, uh, develop confidence from the effort. Is that the post-adrenaline yeah, junkie? Yeah, we Well, also how he said when he came back from his, you know, his first summit, going back to being a junior doctor, he was so full of confidence having had achieved something. Yeah. Uh, work well with others, a strength of teamwork and collaboration. I think that's a yeah. no-brainer. Yeah. Confidence is not arrogance. Keep humbly improving yourself. I've written down so many times through listening to this how humble, how modest he is. Yeah. Yeah, he's also, yeah, obviously confident as well. Uh, determined attitude towards goals, which is, you know, we've said about, I mean, make it happen for yourself is like a line for and Rob, also, isn't it? And also, because you were... You were right to pick up on that because he does talk about that at the beginning of the interview and it's only until quite a bit later 
you realise that that was a mindset he adopted at 11 years yeah. old. And that was almost the inciting incident of his life in terms of realising that you've got to take your own opportunity. Yeah. You know, and I think a lot of us do things that are hard because of external influences. You know, like mm. I imagine that for a lot of people, you know, they'll, they'll say, oh, well, certainly kids, you know, people tease me about this, so I'm going to do X about it. But for, for Robbie, he said, no, 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 it's just, I just decided I want to do this for me. Mm. And then the, the last one on this list here, it actually said 10 characters and I've only done seven, but we got focus on process instead of product, which throughout this whole series has come up, which is this fear of failure. Whereas if you focus on the process, you know, the yeah. journey, basically, enjoy yeah. the journey and, you know, like the end might happen. And perhaps that's key to mountaineers because you can't always make the summit and it's not your fault. Uh, yeah. And he does say that you know, he thinks it's a false illusion to believe that you have to succeed at everything. Mm. And if you go into particularly something like Everest, which is such an endurance event in terms of the climatization, the amount of time you've got to give to it accepting that it could be six weeks, could be eight weeks, could be three months. Mm. Whether external factors, injury, tracheitis, there's all yeah. these different factors that you have to accept as part of the journey that you're speaking about. Yeah. It's, you know, it's, it's the whole package, not just the set the goal, achieve the goal. Yeah, and anything but achieving the goal means that you've wasted your time. Exactly. Because, you know, his, he talks about his ocean route, I'd love to row an ocean. It just sounds amazing. And... He didn't finish it, but that doesn't take away the moment sat there with whales or the bioluminescence in the sea. Yeah. You know, you still experience all of those bits. guest this week was Dr. Rob Cassidy. He's co-founder of a trekking company called Trek 8848. Thank you for listening to Extraordinariness. It was co-produced by myself, Jonathan Harmon and Joanne Spence. Music was by Coma Media. If you enjoyed the show, please do tell someone about it. Also, maybe like it, give us a rating. If you have time, leave us a comment. And if, as promised, if you want to stick around for that digression onto high altitude supplementary oxygen, here it is. Uh, to a certain altitude you may go to camp one and then camp two in one trip and come back down so that's from 5400 meters at base camp to 6000 at camp one 6400 at camp two spend a couple of days uh, and nights there you come back down you have three or four days of regenerating eating eating was it eating shitting sleeping you know that's pretty much the <laughs> the recipe for success but um excuse my french too much time of this <laughs> and the purpose of this is, is for your body to uh, basically more red blood cells, make it so that you can hold more oxygen. Is this, this is the purpose of the acclimatization and going up and down. Exactly. And so uh, you can't do it alpine style. Uh, uh, yeah. And if you, most people use supplemental oxygen, the, the, the flow rates uh, and the delivery of oxygen that you get is actually fairly minimal. Um, so when you're, if you look at a two liter flow rate of oxygen, because I so from a medical perspective, I'm really intrigued and interested in the physiology of, of high altitude mm. adaptation or acclimatization. But if you're breathing, say, at rest 300 milliliters with every breath, and you're breathing in maybe 14 times, you can work out that that's about 4.2 liters of air transfer every mm. minute. So if I was just at rest with a two liter flow rate of oxygen, two liters per minute. I could actually have half of my inspiratory air as oxygen because mm. I'm getting two liters of oxygen. I'm breathing in 4.2 liters. But like, if you listen to some of the video I have from high up on Everest, I'm breathing 60 breaths a minute. My tidal volumes are maybe five to 750 milliliters, probably a lot more. Tidal volume is the amount of air you're drawing in. But as you know, if you, if you take in a massive breath of air, you're probably drawing in a couple of liters for most people. Yeah. So in one breath of air, I've taken in a volume of two liters. So if you're getting two liters of oxygen in a minute, and I'm breathing 60 breaths a minute and up to two liters a time, the actual concentration of oxygen, the difference is very, very minimal. But it does make a difference, a performance difference. It's, a, it's not 
it's an insignificant, significant difference if you see it. Right. And okay, yeah. So so you could go up on oxygen. People think, oh, can I just not strap on oxygen right from the bottom and go up to the top, like in a few days, knock it out, yeah. up and down. And the answer is no, you can't. And, and I mean, uh, adapt. like, I don't want to spend too long veering off on a really geeky uh, chat about supplementary oxygen, but it's really interesting because from a flying perspective, we talk about it's the partial pressure of the oxygen that's the problem yeah. rather than the quantity. Is that if the pressure's not high enough, it literally can't be pushed through your, you know. So, so, so now you get into an, a really even more interesting concept of, of physiology, but, but very uh, in a, as briefly as I can, and simply as I can, not for you, but for anyone. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, things move from one place to another because of a, a pressure gradient or a concentration. Yeah. So if you have, um, so oxygen, which is in the air, will diffuse naturally into our, our blood via a kind of active process of breathing in uh, and then tra- uh, diffusion across a membrane in the lung, uh, the lung wall, because it's moving from a higher concentration of oxygen to a lower concentration of oxygen in your blood. But that gradient becomes much, 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 much more shallow uh, the higher you go as there is a lower partial pressure of oxygen. And around the summit of Everest, that, that, that kind of uh, gradient is zero. Right. So depending on the day, if we have a high pressure day on Everest, there is more chance of someone trying to go without oxygen will summit. Oh, if that's fascinating. Because that, if you think about it, it's the partial pressure, yeah. it's the availability of oxygen molecules. So it's, it's uh, literally, as you, you will know very well, it's the compression yeah. of the same number of molecules into a smaller space. Therefore, you know, or if partial pressure is increased, you'll be getting more molecules for every air but, uh, or air intake. But that, that generates the oxygen pressure within your arteries that, uh, and then to your, your, your tissues. And it's all down a chain of gra- uh, oxygen gradient. And uh, what, what we're looking at more and more in terms of research is what happens at the mitochondria. So if you can actually get oxygen to the mitochondria, how does that, you know, can you still function at a very, very, very low partial pressure of oxygen with no oxygen gradient between the, uh, uh, the atmosphere and your mitochondria? Mm. But that's the, to cut it in a nutshell, someone asked me, why do we need oxygen? And it's all to do with ATP, this energy block that we we our bodies use it's not the glucose actually but it's how glucose interacts with oxygen and water and is fed into the metabolic powerhouse of our cells the mitochondria and if you don't have any oxygen you make about four atp for every krebs cycle and if you have oxygen i think you make 38 or someone's going to check this up and find that i'm way out but i think it's about 36 or 38 atp molecules so it's much more efficient with oxygen if you don't have oxygen you just grind to a halt metabolically you become in you become you know uh, status vegetalis i don't know what <laughs> uh, uh, right okay let's move on from that 